Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, February 21st, 2020. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, with a summary of election news. Today, Sanders is the clear favorite in Nevada, but the number two finisher is polling at a five-way statistical tie. The Wednesday debate was watched by a record audience for this cycle and helped candidates pull in piles of cash. Warren signals it's okay for super PACs to spend on her behalf. And Iowa, always Iowa, Iowa, Iowa. The Nevada caucuses are tomorrow. South Carolina holds its primary in eight days. Super Tuesday is shortly thereafter on March 3rd. And a quick run of 256 days until we hit the general election. And today is my last day as host. More at the end of the program. And here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. The Nevada caucuses are tomorrow, and it's going to be a wild ride. I've been saying for weeks that Iowa and New Hampshire get too much attention, but I do think that the amount of time we've been able to see the candidates in action has turned out to be useful. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's all stump speeches and talking points. But because the numbers are so relatively close and two early states so non-representative of the country as a whole, Candidates have had to engage in more hand-to-hand fighting, talk to more people in candid settings, and so forth. The scrums and debates don't always reveal much, but the ninth debate a couple nights ago sure did. So while Nevada isn't particularly important in terms of delegates picked up, and Super Tuesday is so close, the state will be a crucible more than usual. It has a lot of union members, and its demographics more closely resemble the electorate nationally. But it's a caucus, so only a subset of potential Democratic voters will be attending even though efforts were made with early voting locations to open it up much more. Then there's the added pressure of seeing if Nevada can pull off reporting numbers quickly and accurately with the new Democratic National Committee standards of providing more data at each stage as Iowa did, but hopefully not in the way that Iowa did. Even if Nevada goes off without a hitch, I do wonder if caucuses for picking national delegates will end in this cycle. Former Senator Harry Reid of Nevada wants Nevada to be the first in the nation but I think that's going to depend on performance. Polls are thin in Nevada, and Senator Bernie Sanders is expected to win potentially big. I'll dig into a couple polls in a little bit. Billionaire media mogul Mike Bloomberg didn't campaign there or attempt to be part of it, aside from appearing at the Las Vegas debate on Wednesday. However, the ground game could make a difference, and depending on how well it was played, could provide an upset, or at least a different ranking below number one. The Nevada Independent has an intriguing analysis of the rural-urban split in the state. While 90% of residents live in the larger urban areas, the caucuses divvy up state delegates in such a way that rural voters have more power in a sort of electoral college way. The paper writes, quote, Take a hypothetical five-delegate precinct in Clark County with about 500,000 Democrats and compare it to a five-delegate precinct in Esmeralda County with about 100 Democratic voters. It notes that you need heavy turnout to win the five delegates in Clark County, but only five voters have to appear in Esmeralda to take that prize. In Iowa, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Senator Amy Klobuchar seem to have great teams on the ground that help them scare up voters. Klobuchar wasn't able to build a team in advance of Nevada on the same basis, but Buttigieg has field offices all over the state. The New York Times explains that early voting may not give Warren a chance to take advantage of her debate breakout, however. Quote, it might be too late for her to mount a big comeback in Nevada, which holds its caucuses on Saturday. That's because 75,000 people had already cast early ballots by the time she took the stage on Wednesday. Now, as for those polls, a February 19th and 20th poll of Nevada by Data for Progress places Sanders at 32%, and effectively tied for second place are Senator Elizabeth Warren, Buttigieg, and former Vice President Joe Biden with 17, 15, and 14%. The poll didn't report the number of people surveyed, and the margin of error is just plus or minus 2.3%. 
Emerson College also polled Nevadans on those days, speaking with 425 likely Democratic caucus goers, and found 30% for Sanders, followed by Buttigieg at 17%, Biden at 16%, Warren at 12%, Klobuchar at 11%, and billionaire Tom Steyer at 10%. With a plus or minus 4.7% margin of error, the five following Sanders are effectively tied too. Meanwhile, 538's predictive model for the Democratic National Convention puts a brokered outcome at 42% and the odds of Sanders hitting the majority at 34%. The analysis of the impact from Wednesday's debate continues, of course. Warren won it by a long shot. Sanders did perfectly well. Biden, Buttigieg, and Klobuchar duked it out for how moderate each could be. And Bloomberg was the GOAT. But will the debate have any effect on the nomination process? It's always the question, because one wonders how many people actually watch the dang thing especially the ninth one. Does a consensus emerge, or does everyone see what they want to from a candidate they already favor? Do decideds move around? Does it have an impact on the many people who didn't watch? We can answer some of those questions. Let's start with the numbers. Lots of people watched the debate. The event was hosted by NBC and had nearly 20 million viewers across NBC's broadcast and cable networks, according to the Nielsen Rating Service, and NBC says there were another 13.5 million online streams. The broadcast audience alone was larger than any debate in this election cycle and the Golden Globes. Second, fundraising out of the debates was quite good. Both Warren and Buttigieg were starting to skate on thin ice in terms of funds remaining at the end of January, and February was very good to both campaigns. The Warren campaign said on Thursday that it had raised $5 million since the debate started on Wednesday and $17 million so far in February. Buttigieg's campaign has raised $11 million this month. Sanders continues to rake in fundraising money, getting the large majority of donations at $200 or below. His campaign said it took in $2.7 million on Wednesday, the day of the debate. Warren's campaign, by the way, said it accepted $2.8 million just on Wednesday. Biden's campaign released no new figures for February, and Bloomberg isn't accepting donations. Klobuchar also put out no new information from earlier in the month. Politico ran a mistimed article this morning titled, Warren, Biden, and Buttigieg Dangerously Close to Going Broke, based on the officially filed fundraising and spending totals just released from January, but seemingly excluding the latest informal data yesterday and today. These January numbers are still revealing. Sanders brought in $25.1 million in January, Warren just $10.4 million, Biden $8.9 million, Buttigieg $6.2 million, and Klobuchar $5.5 million. Across the entire election cycle, Sanders leads with $121 million in donations. Buttigieg and Warren follow with $82.4 million and $81.5 million. Then Biden with $69.7 million, though he entered the nomination race late. Klobuchar has only raised $30.8 million so far, which makes the $12 million she pulled in following her New Hampshire debate earlier this month remarkable. That debate was hailed as her best presentation of herself to date. Given the escalating staff and advertising costs approaching Super Tuesday, Politico's headline does make sense. Warren paid nearly $9 million for staff salaries and payroll taxes in January, and it's only going to increase. Her campaign tapped a $3 million line of credit and took out a $400,000 loan that month. Buttigieg's campaign just set a $13 million fundraising goal before Super Tuesday to, quote, stay competitive, end quote. In January, Buttigieg and Warren were far outspending what they took in, while Sanders' burn rate was nearly the same as income. He was taking in just about as much as he was spending. By the way, Bloomberg spent over $400 million by the end of January. It's likely above half a billion by now, if not higher. He plans to spend a billion, even if he's not the nominee. 
I don't believe any candidate will drop out before Super Tuesday, but the next debate on February 25th will probably be a make-or-break fundraising opportunity coming just days ahead of voting that awards one-third of delegates. That stage will feature the top five candidates, and Bloomberg will also be invited, though will he appear, as he has met the national polling threshold. But the numbers make it pretty clear that Super Tuesday will clear the field. Now finally, Bloomberg is chastened and many staffers threw themselves on their swords, but voters may not care. Howard Wolfson, one of Mr. Bloomberg's closest advisors, on Thursday shouldered the blame for the outcome of the debate. Quote, I led the debate prep and I accept the responsibility for inadequately preparing him, end quote, Mr. Wolfson said. And New York Times, quote, in Salt Lake City on Thursday morning, Bloomberg told a crowd of hundreds, quote, so how was your night last night, end quote. He's focusing his campaign on two men, Sanders and President Donald Trump. His message on Sanders is straightforward. Quote, if we choose a candidate who appeals to a small base like Senator Sanders, it will be a fatal error. Bloomberg is taking out ads to ridicule Trump in Las Vegas and Phoenix, targeting upcoming appearances that Trump will make in the West. The billboards feature large, uppercase red type and say, Donald Trump cheats at golf. Donald Trump eats burnt steak. Donald Trump lost the popular vote. And Donald Trump went broke running a casino. As for Bloomberg standing, we'll need to see the national polls out over the weekend and early next week, especially following Nevada, to show what shook out. The Election Ride Home is brought to you by Plexiderm. Picture your face in the mirror. Do you see all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet or those large under-eye bags? Now, imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. You apply the clear serum under your eyes and boom. Two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so no one will know you're using it unless you tell them. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning code VOICES. Plexiderm has a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit tryplexiderm.com today and use code VOICES at checkout. That's tryplexiderm.com, code VOICES. The Election Ride Home is also brought to you by Bill Press's new podcast. I wanted to give you the latest news about Bill Press. Bill no longer does his progressive morning show, but that doesn't mean he's gone away. No way! He's out now with a great new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Check out The Bill Press Pod for Bill's interviews with some of the country's leading progressives, like Maxine Waters, Mark Pocan, and Jamie Raskin, all roasting Donald Trump. Plus, his lively end-of-the-week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters commenting on the latest craziness from the White House, Congress, and the 2020 Democratic primary. For years, Bill Press has been one of the leading progressive voices in the country. He's still out there, on the left, stronger than ever. You can join him by subscribing to his new podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts, search for the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you're in for a true progressive experience on the Bill Press Pod. 
In a reversal, Warren gave the go-ahead earlier in the week to a super PAC to spend on her behalf. Super PACs allow unlimited spending that isn't coordinated with a campaign and isn't donated to the candidate or a party. Super PACs were enabled several years ago through two Supreme Court decisions and have come to symbolize the rampant distortion of the political process by many observers on the left and right. Now, Democrats tend to criticize the very nature of super PACs more heavily than Republicans, some of whom argue that money is speech and corporations have similar rights to people. But many Democratic candidates allow super PAC money to be spent because not doing so is a competitive disadvantage when all those in a race don't agree to disclaim it. And technically, a candidate could say no to super PACs, as Bernie Sanders has, and those entities could place ads and engage in other activities anyway because they are legally independent. Until now, Warren has abjured super PACs. In October 2019, she tweeted from her own account, quote, it's disappointing that any Democratic candidate would reverse course and endorse the use of unlimited contributions from the wealthy to run against fellow Democrats. A handful of wealthy donors should not be allowed to buy the Democratic nomination. That's not who we are. The Democratic primary should belong to grassroots supporters and grassroots donors, not the rich and powerful. Every Democratic candidate should agree super PACs have no place in our primary, end quote. But a couple of days ago, she said this. Do you want the super PAC supporting you to stand down? So look, the first day I got in this race over a year ago, I said, I hope every presidential candidate that comes in will agree, no super PACs for any of us. I renewed that call dozens of times, and I couldn't get a single Democrat to go along with me. Finally, we reached the point a few weeks ago where all of the men who are still in this race and on the debate stage all had either super PACs or they were multi-billionaires and could just, you know, rummage around in their sock drawers and find enough money to be able to fund a campaign. And the only people who didn't have them were the two women. And at that point, there are some women around the country who said, you know, that's just not right. So here's where I stand. If all the candidates want to get rid of super PACs, count me in. I'll lead the charge. But that's how it has to be. It can't be the case that a bunch of people keep them and only one or two don't. This is realpolitik, or maybe even a little bit of utilitarianism, in that Warren is placing the fact that competitors have declined to stand down ahead of her principal and super PACs in order that she might achieve the greatest good in her mind, which is winning. It's sure to keep debate fires lit, but I do wonder if most voters care. Many people agree with her stance on super PACs, but those who support her largely would prefer for her to win instead of fighting with one arm tied behind her back. Candidates who have dropped out might have the most to say. The Daily Beast quotes Bakari Sellers, who endorsed Senator Kamala Harris, who ended her run in December, quote, It's a level of political hypocrisy that most people who watch from afar hate about politics. You have these purity tests that you don't ascribe to yourself, end quote. Meanwhile, the men. One super PAC has spent heavily on Joe Biden, Unite the Country, placing around $7 million in ads. That included $5.5 million in Iowa, where Biden came in fourth. Buttigieg has had a lift from Vote Vets, a group that has spent nearly $2 million on his behalf. As I discussed recently, a Buttigieg staffer made a public tweet about the former mayor's record and Nevada, clearly intended to signal to Vote Vets to spend in that race. But because it was public, it was probably legal? If done privately, it would have been clearly illegal. Nonetheless, the nonpartisan watchdog group Campaign Legal Center filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission about the tweet three days ago. Quote, the tweet from Buttigieg's agent is susceptible of no reasonable interpretation other than a request or suggestion for vote vets. The only super PAC or other outside group supporting Buttigieg's candidacy at that time, end quote. 
The campaign didn't respond to various media outlets' queries. However, VoteVets said that it had made, quote, independent expenditures to support the nomination of former Mayor Pete Buttigieg, end quote. Sanders also receives the support of super PACs and regular PACs. He said that he doesn't want it, but he didn't offer the full-throated no that Warren previously did. Here's what he said in conversation with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press on February 9th. You have some, you have PACs helping you. They're not necessarily super PACs, but you have some outside groups that are helping you. Maybe you don't want them to help I you right now. I don't want them, that's right. But you know they are. Yeah. And there's people, there's half a million dollar. Some, some of them are some nurses. Some call it dark money, yeah. Some of them are nurses, and some of them are immigration activists, and some of them are civil rights activists. I understand that. Yeah. Do you not want their help? I, we have a system which is broken. I understand that. I don't know. And yeah, I'm saying right now, if my opponents say they don't want that out, uh, that third party help, I'm, I'm all for that right now. Let's end But it. right now, you'll accept the help as long as they're going to get it. It's legal. Help. What can I do? You know, that people have a right to participate in the political process. The groups supporting Sanders have spent very small sums. One spent $70,000 on T-shirts and placards and are mostly involved in organizing and canvassing. Finally, an update from Iowa. Of course, I was out earlier this week when it was reported, but I can't finish out my tenure on this show without this news. On Tuesday, the Iowa Democratic Party released updated voting counts of re-canvassed disputed precincts and said the number of state delegate equivalents, or SDEs, are now 563.127 for Sanders and 563.206 for Buttigieg. Yes, that's six one-hundredths of an SDE difference. In percentage terms, it's in the thousandths of a percentage point. Naturally, Sanders gets 12 national delegates and Buttigieg 14. What? Well, that's because national delegates are assigned both by statewide voting and congressional district, and Buttigieg won the sort of electoral college on a couple of those. On Wednesday, Buttigieg's campaign asked for a recount of 54 precincts, and Sanders' group wants a recount of 10, which requires going back to the paper ballot record. The simulation is broken. We are never leaving Iowa. And that's the election roundup for today. I have been your host, Glenn Fleischman, taking over for the magnificent Chris Higgins since January. As a fan of the podcast and of Chris and of the Ride Home gang, Brian McCullough and James Welsh, it's been a pleasure to be in this seat. However, other obligations are pressing, and I am delighted to hand off the podcast to Jackson Bird as we approach Super Tuesday. Please keep listening to Jackson as he takes on the most important event on the election calendar this year and beyond. It has been my privilege to be your host, and thank you all for the feedback. Come back on Monday for the next installment of Election Ride Home, and have a pleasant weekend. 